right, if you have your Bible with you, let's turn up to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. If you would, when you get there, the normal custom is to stand as we read the Word of God, so let's stand and read this together. Matthew chapter 2. <coughs> Beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus thus it is written by the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may also come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Let's pray. Father, we ask you again, though this is a passage that many of us have read so many times, not just this time of year, but throughout the year. I pray, Lord, you'd give us a a fresh look at this again, for we believe this is your word. And I pray that you would open our eyes to the marvelous truths that you have for us here this morning. And I ask for your help to speak words of truth. Knowing, Lord, that it is you that impresses them on the heart. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege to gather here together. Help us, Lord, as we look at Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I guess I'll begin by saying Merry Christmas, at least five days early to all of you. There's at least one song that I keep hearing in the grocery stores as I walk through that keeps telling me that this is the most wonderful time of the year. Now, many of us probably would agree with that, probably for different reasons than whoever it is that sings that song. It it is a wonderful time. It's a time of trees and lights and ornaments and family traditions and A time of turkey and ham and feasting. Maybe some of us gathering a pound or two more than we want to or should. It's a time of holly and poinsettias and mistletoe and chestnuts roasting on an open fire. It's a time where hopefully we can gather together with loved ones and friends and reminisce on the year that's almost past and the year that's about to commence. Nativity scenes are once again dug out of attics and crawl spaces and sheds and they're carefully set up in yards and 
some public places. And, and then cards are sent and we hear songs all over the place talking of Mary and Joseph. Stables and mangers, shepherds and wise men and an infant called Jesus in the middle of it all. And then our culture is brought face to face with stories of supernatural events. A virgin birth. A star that wasn't quite a normal star, was it? Angelic appearances and other things. And whether we're cognizant of it or not, hearing these stories again and again, one thing that it does do is demand a verdict in each one of our minds. Either these things happened or they did not happen. And make no mistake, our answer to that question has everything to do with our eternal destiny beyond this life. I read a very sad statement from a religious leader in a major denomination some time ago. I'll read it to you. He said, of course, these narratives are not literally true. Stars do not wander. Angels do not sing. Virgins do not give birth. Wise men do not travel to a distant land to give gifts to a baby. And shepherds do not go in search of a newborn Savior. Now I couldn't help as I read that to think of two things. First of all, what a strange position of hypocrisy to be a professing shepherd among the people of the Lord and yet not know where you're going yourself and shut yourself out of the only source of food with which you can help anybody. And also I pity the man because effectively he's left himself to face the rest of this life and his upcoming eternity with only his brains and his own two fists. And let's face it, the older we get, the less of a defense those things become. You know, if there's no such thing as the supernatural, if there's no miraculous that ever has occurred then the life after death that every single person in here thinks about and can picture because you're made in the image of God is a complete and total myth. If there's no miraculous, then there is no solution to our deep sinfulness because surely we know that no natural means can fix it. If there's no miraculous, then there's no answer for the deeper questions and dilemmas we face on this dying planet. The problem of human suffering and why people die and all of these things that all of us wonder if there's no miraculous, life has no meaning. Let's just live it up this holiday season and die. You know, I don't stand before all of you this morning sharing with you another set of colorful fairy tales designed to increase the magical feeling this holiday season. I have a commission from God that's far more serious than that. I stand before you this morning with nothing less than the inspired word of the living God to declare what He has said, not to wonder and not merely to suggest. This book has stood up to the most intense scrutiny that the most brilliant scoffers this world could produce has ever thrown at it. Perhaps you've noticed that all the Robert Ingersolls of history have one thing in common. They die a hopeless death and their hopeless message dies right along with them. But yet the Word of God remains. 
Its archaeological accuracy has been proven trustworthy time and again. Its prophecies have been fulfilled undeniably and specifically without fail, except those that are yet future, and there are plenty of those. No, there's no book like it, is there? And it gives commentary on the sinful state of the human heart. Let's face it, it's not very pleasant. But yet, if we're honest with ourselves and the world around us, we really can't deny that either. Now, in the verses that we just read, if you notice there in verse 1, in the days of Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of, or in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, you see that word, behold. That's sort of the divine equivalent of, listen up, look, draw attention to something. The spotlight goes on and he says, behold, look, there comes these wise men from the east. And so this morning we're going to behold these wise men and uh, see, really just ask two questions out of this passage. Number one, who are these men? That is important to know the historical background. It sheds a lot of light on the passage. And question number two, with that in the background, what can we learn from these men? Why are they mentioned in the biblical record? And there are many reasons why. Now there's a lot of legends concerning them. You've probably heard them. The wise men are usually shown as being three in number. That comes from the number of gifts that they brought. And surely one guy carried one package, right? And it was wrapped up in American wrapping paper with a bow on top. That's where that comes from. They're oftentimes shown by the manger at nativity scenes. If you pay careful attention to the text here and in Luke, the wise men were never at the manger at all. Jesus in this passage is not in a manger, he's in a house. And he's not the baby here, he's the young child. You see, the wise men showed up on the scene after the manger scene was over for some time. Some have given them names, and they say dogmatically, their names are Balthazar, Malchior, and Gaspar. Where they got that, I have no idea, but it's actually pretty widespread. Some say they represent the sons of Shemham and Japheth, where the major cultural and ethnic divisions of the world first began to divide. That's why if you've ever seen the three wise men on a poster, and one of them is Ethiopian looking, that's why, because he's supposedly the son of Ham. You know, one archaeologist even says he found their skull and bones. You know, he, he finds these three skeletons and he knew right away these belong to the wise men of Matthew chapter 2. Believe it or not, the next time you're in Germany, if you'd like, you can visit the Shrine of the Three Kings in a major, major, huge cathedral where supposedly there's this gold sarcophagus that hidden inside is the skull and bones of the three wise men. Now, I probably don't have to tell you that none of those things have any basis in fact. They came from a variety of sources, and none of them really have anything to do with true history or the scriptures. But who were these guys? Well, the wise men comes from the Greek word magos. We make the Greek transliteration magi from that. You may have heard that. That's why they're referred to as magi in some uh, different publications and historical records. The Magi were an ancient priestly tribe who went back clear to the time of the ancient Medes. Now it's hard to pinpoint the start of the ancient Medes, but some reputable historians would place them clear back at the time of Ur of the Chaldees. You'll remember Abraham, Genesis 11 and 12 came out of there. So wherever specifically in history this tribe began, it is no doubt a very, very ancient tribe. And 
how they functioned was sort of like the tribe of Levi and Israel. Remember what they did. They were the priests. They conducted the sacrifices. They were the religious leaders, if you want to call them that. And, and these magi were the religious leaders, sadly, in a pagan worship that the fallen minds of men had made up in contradistinction to what God had set in place. Well, you can imagine that because of their priestly functions and eventually their occultic powers, their supposed intuition and the deeper mysteries, their knowledge of astronomy and astrology, and uh, to be able to look up in the stars and tell you some hidden meaning from that, eventually what happened is they rose to a place of tremendous political prominence. Now by the time of the Babylonian Empire, roughly 600 B.C., they were the chief advisors to the most powerful king in the world. You read the book of Daniel, you run across these guys frequently. You remember in the book of Daniel, if you've read it, you see the magicians. First four letters, magi. You know, the magicians in the book of Daniel weren't David Copperfields who pulled rabbits out of top hats. The magicians mentioned in the book of Daniel were this historical tribe of so-called wise men. And you remember proud King Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he has this dream and he can't remember it and he wants somebody to interpret. So who does he call but his circle of wise men? But there's a problem, they didn't have an answer for him. And Nebuchadnezzar says off with their heads and kill them all. But there's a young Hebrew captive by the name of Daniel who'd been given a power by the real God to interpret dreams. You remember he tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and Nebuchadnezzar becomes one of these, or, or Daniel comes into a circle of advisors and then in Nebuchadnezzar, or Daniel chapter 5, Daniel's referred to as the master of the magicians. Daniel was the chief of the magi, these wise men, at least in Daniel's time. Now, we know full well that Daniel and friends had a tremendous influence on this group. Not only them, but the Jews that stuck behind after the captivity and intermarried. So they had at least some light given to them. Now, we don't know what all scriptures they had, but it's a safe assumption that they at least had Daniel's prophecy, which said a tremendous amount about the coming Messiah centuries before he was born. Now by the time of the Persian Empire, after Babylon, a prospective king had to pass two qualifications to be king. One, he had to be trained by these magi. Two, he had to be approved by these magi. So they were quite literally king makers who historically had put some of the most powerful kings on earth on the throne and had a major say in their kingdom. They had a political clout that although seemed to be diminishing by this time in the record we're reading, that had spanned four consecutive major world empires. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now into Rome's world dominion. And apparently by this time there was enough water and sand between them and Rome that they still maintained a lot of their political clout. Now, with that in your mind, can you imagine Herod's dismay with what we just read? <clears throat> See, King Herod was a monstrous savage of a human being. King Herod had scratched and scraped and clawed for every vestige of power he could possibly get his hands on. 
He had used betrayal and bribery and murder and extortion and anything you could think of. And it was eventually the Romans who gave in to him and said, All right, you can have this area and you can call yourself the king of the Jews. Herod had nine wives. His favorite wife was executed upon the slightest suspicion. Herod had many sons. You know, five days before his own death, he had his own son executed because he was jealous of him. At Herod the Great's death, he commanded that, that many noblemen from his kingdom would be brought in. And as soon as Herod died, they were all to be put to death so that people would weep at his funeral. Thankfully, they didn't obey that one. This is the Herod that Augustus Caesar, you know what he said? He said, it's better to be Herod's hog than to be Herod's son. That's not exactly a compliment. So here's this murderous savage protecting the walls of his little mini kingdom as king of the Jews. Then all of a sudden comes these ancient kingmakers asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where's the rightful heir of the throne? And get this, we're come to worship him. No wonder it says Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. He flew into a satanic rage. You can see the way he deals with it. Look in verse 4. How did he deal with the religious Jews? He gathered them together and he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now when he deals with the Magi, what does he do? Verse 7. He privily called them and inquired of them diligently. See, he put on his nice guy face with these nobles from the east because he didn't have the jurisdiction over them. And he knew something of who they were. And he does the unthinkable. Most of us are familiar with the story. He sends his soldiers down to Bethlehem in the surrounding area. And he orders all the children from two years old and under to be brutally slaughtered. An entire village of children cut off. Because of the rage of one satanic man. Because of who showed up asking. Now how many magi were there? Well, there's really no sure answer. We don't know. But it's quite possibly a larger number than we think. I mean, this isn't some three men sneaking up to Jerusalem and sort of slipping in the gate before it slams shut for the night. Wrong picture. Wealthy noblemen, especially from the east, did not travel that way back then. How did the Queen of Sheba show up? With the rickety carriage that was falling apart? Wealthy king-making noblemen showed up in the finest accommodations with servants for help and protection carrying gifts of wealth from the east. I mean, these guys' entrance was uh, probably the talk of the town. You know, we open up our hymnal and we sing, We three kings of Orient are. And all that's poetic and it rolls off the tongue wonderfully. It's a lot easier than singing, We unknown number of high-ranking government officials comprised of an ancient tribe of king-making pagans from across the Arabian desert. But the second is actually a far more accurate historical picture. So, all right, with, with, with that in our minds as the backdrop, what lessons can we learn from these men? I'm not a big fan of religious cliches. We see them on bumper stickers all over the place. Most of you have probably seen it. It says, wise men still seek him. Even though it's overused, you know, it is still true. It is a good play on words. What can we learn from them? Lesson number one. 
The word of God is powerful, and we can never quite guess who is going to be affected by it. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10. The Lord draws attention to the rain. And he's telling them, look, you see the rain fall up in the mountains. And it's clear and it's devoid of nutrients. And it falls down on the top of those peaks. And it begins to cascade downhill. And it looks like it's not doing anything. It's clear and it's empty. But what it's doing is carrying the rich nutrients that eventually, when it reaches the appointed place in the valley below, life springs up. It doesn't need your permission or mine. There's places in the world mankind has never laid eyes on where life exists because of that cycle. And the Lord says, you see that? Now let me tell you something in the next verse. My word will not return unto me void. He says, just like that rain falls and comes back, I put my word out there with life-giving nutrients. And do you know what happened? Life springs up. You know one of the most wonderful things about preaching? Every time I stand to open this book, there's at least two things I know. One, in every single conscience here, you may hate my guts, you may sit and smile, you may be indifferent, but here's what I do know. The Word of God says that God's Spirit reproves man of sin and righteousness and judgment. There's not a conscience here that God has not actively dealt with showing you what's wrong, what's right, and there's a coming day of accountability. That's universal. Now you can suppress that. You can scar and sear your own conscience. You can put your fingers in your ears and scream and run out the door. But the bottom line is I have an ally bearing witness in your heart and your soul while you hear the Word of God from the outside. Here's the other thing. I don't know necessarily where or how, but some will be honest with themselves and the Word of God and the God of the Word. They will listen to what's said. And you know what's going to happen? New life is going to spring up. Sometimes it's from an unexpected place. Sometimes it's the person I least expect. I've watched more than once two people seated fairly close and one of them is as hard as a stone and one of them looks like he just got hit by lightning. They're listening to the same message. I don't know all the mechanisms. You know, you look at the earthly life of Christ and there were some unexpecteds in His followers, weren't there? You take uh, probably the worst insult you could call somebody in the New Testament times was a publican. That was almost a curse word. They were the despised tax collectors, traitors to their own countrymen, turncoats and despised servants of the Romans. Everybody hated them. But yet you and I are reading the words of one of those publicans who came and believed on Christ and had his life changed. There's a woman there in the crowd who had seven demons cast out of her. And what a piece of work she must have been. Here's the brawny and... and uh, self-confident and impetuous Peter, the fisherman. And here's a leper too that has had his appendages marred and eaten away by disease and ravaging illness. And he's healed by Christ and there he is. And, and then the other end of the spectrum, among the wealthy and the influential, there's Joseph of Arimathea who gave his tomb away to the Lord. Or here's the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, who eventually put together the trial that had him crucified. 
But one of those 70 is called Nicodemus, who also became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's always been some who were willing to be honest with themselves and with the Word of God. Who would have thought when the Jews were chained up and carried away to Babylon, the most powerful empire on earth, that four young teenage boys whom we know as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by their simple obedience to the truth of the word of God in the face of impending death, would be used to turn two world empires upside down. Who would have thought that proud King Nebuchadnezzar at the zenith of Babylon's power and wealth as he walks through his palace saying, look what I've built and look who I am, that he's struck down by the God of heaven and he's driven into the wilderness for seven years. And that same proud king comes back and we see his words penned at the end of Daniel 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor who? The king of heaven. His works are truth, his works are judgment, and those that walk in pride... He is able to abase or to cut down. Who would have thought five centuries later, the Jews are dwelling in total spiritual blindness. The Savior is born in their midst and none of them seem to care. You know, we, we think of Bethlehem, we sing, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And who would have thought out of the sands of the desert to the east uh, with the scroll of Daniel under their arm would appear these wise men saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Do you notice they didn't say, is he born? They said, where is he? You never quite know what the Word of God's going to do. Lesson number two. This is a heart-wrenching one. I'm sad to say it's the case. But it's not necessarily those that have the most spiritual privilege who give Christ the most honor. It's usually the opposite, isn't it? People who are given the most spiritually, as far as understanding, many times are the ones that familiarity somehow breeds contempt. Take these Jewish leaders. They had all the scriptures that the Magi had. Plus all the rest. They had all 39 scrolls of the Old Testament. They had portions memorized. They'd been trained in its teaching. They wore little scrolls and leather boxes on their arm and on their forehead. They had heard about the angel appearing to Zechariah the priest not too long ago. And then there's these pesky rumors of a virgin birth. I mean, what's the deal with that? And it should have been a loud warning to them when these men show up from the east and saying, where is he? And you know, to increase their shame, what do they do? They answer the question without even missing a beat. Where is he born? Oh, Bethlehem of Judea. I mean, don't you know the prophet said it? Where have you been? But as far as we know, not one of them girded his loins and went down to find out. Isn't that amazing? Could have had a free ride with the Magi. 
You know, if I was standing in the heart of Jerusalem right now, Bethlehem is five miles that way. It's not very far. But they wouldn't go look. You know, I fear heaven's final records concerning American religion in this century is not going to fare a whole lot better. There is a very, very real danger of having vast amounts of knowledge in the head and no saving faith in the heart. I've run across them and so have you. Multitudes. They're raised in the church. They have some sort of scriptural or spiritual background. Mom taught Sunday school. Granddad was a preacher. They're sitting in a land that's saturated with Bibles. They live in a land with a freedom that's still the envy of the rest of the world. They can tell you facts and stories and they can answer questions and they can quote verses. But it never travels from here to here somehow. Are you one that tells others the way to Jesus and you won't go yourself? Do you think that answering spiritual questions... When you won't look after the implications of those answers yourself, gets you off the hook of judgment, not on your life, it increases it. You know, the question isn't, can you tell somebody all the stories of the figurines and the nativity scene? The question is, do you demonstrate by your life that you are, in fact, seeking Him? You know, these magi condemn many people by their example because they made the most of what they had. Lesson three, they're a tremendous example of spiritual diligence. Here's what I mean by that. They had their priorities in order. And they actually made an effort to know the truth. Almost five centuries had gone by since the prophecy concerning the coming Messiah had been given that they had. Five centuries. Centuries. And obviously they didn't live that long. But to some degree they'd grown up knowing it was coming. And I can picture him with one eye on the calendar and one eye on the sky over Jerusalem. And finally the promised sign comes and off they go. It was a long and unpleasant journey, especially by our standards. There was dangers of beasts and robbers. But they weren't deterred. You see, Jesus, to them, the coming Savior, was the pearl of great price. And they were going after Him, come what may. Just think, what would the other magi say? I mean, can't you boys find somebody a little closer to home to worship? Somebody that it's not so hard to go find, and somebody that doesn't demand so much? What's the deal with you guys? What's gotten into your heads? What type of fanaticism have you given into? You're going, you're going where? Even when they got to Jerusalem, they boldly declared their purpose and they didn't give up. You know, you read the record of the star, didn't lead them all the way across the desert. The star appeared in the east and went away. They came all the way across that desert. And the reason they came to Jerusalem is because the star was gone. And they came there asking, and I think it was so God would give a loud warning to those religious leaders when these guys show up and said, all right, so where is he? And then the star leads them to the house. You see, these men must have been at least a little disturbed that nobody seemed to care. It's like everybody was sleeping all around them and they're thinking, if we're so excited for the coming Savior, you're the chosen people, why aren't you? How diligently do you care for your own soul, honestly? Isn't it worth more than to just casually seek? 
isn't it? Jesus once asked the question, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, there's a lot of answers to that question, isn't there? There's a lot of others. Multitudes in our culture, they'll spend hundreds or thousands of hours learning how to sit in a tree stand and fire a bow with pinpoint accuracy. They'll spend the same amount of time collecting facts and figures and statistics for their fantasy football team. But when it comes to the deeper issues of life, when it comes to who is God and what is He like, when it comes to who am I in the sight of God and how can I approach Him, when it comes to am I prepared for my date with death and to stand face to face with the living God, they don't have time. You've seen it, haven't you? you go by the cemetery. Here's a collection of mourners. And they eventually disperse. They go off to their own busy lives and... And they leave behind them one six feet underground whose soul's off in eternity. Many times it's one who just didn't have time to prepare for that immovable deadline. No time. Those that lightly esteem their soul in this life are going to find that God lightly esteems it in the next. Fourthly, wise men are an example of great faith. Now, I need to qualify that a little bit in our culture. Most people think faith is the stuff of fairy godmothers and kissing frogs that turn into princes. I'm reminded of the little girl. She's told to define faith, and she says, well, faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's how a lot of people look at it. Bible faith is not a leap in the dark. Bible faith is not blind. Bible faith is based on substance and evidence and infallible proofs. That's one of the biggest reasons God has given fulfilled prophecy. Because it doesn't matter what you and I feel or how soundly we believe something. What matters is what is true. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. Faith doesn't change reality. Faith takes hold of reality. Faith doesn't change who God is. Faith accepts and believes who God is and what He says. There's a big difference. These men had the scriptures and they believed in Christ when they had never seen him. They had prophecies written centuries before his birth. And by the way, how did they interpret those prophecies? Literal, right? 483 years meant 483 years. Now that was to Christ's triumphal entry, which was 483 years to the day from when the command went to rebuild Jerusalem to when he came in on the, on the donkey. But they knew the time was coming close. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees refused to. They believed in him when they saw him as an infant in Mary's lap and worshipped him as king. Think about it. They saw him perform no miracle to convince them. They heard none of his teaching to persuade them. They saw none of his signs of outward deity to fill them full of awe and wonder. All they saw is a helpless infant with normal needs, born in a poor family, and they recognized Him as Savior of the world, and they fell down and worshipped Him because of what God had said in His Word. Reminds me of the criminal on the cross. You know, that whole ridiculous debacle at Calvary, and all the crowds passing by. Here's this one criminal in the middle who saw through it all. You know why? 
because he wasn't looking for a political leader or somebody to fix all of his human problems. He was looking for a savior from his sins. And anybody looking for that is bound to find him. But the problem is, most people aren't. Now, I think that begs a major question. Who is this infant? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? You know, these magi, if you keep in mind their background, they were not coming to pay homage to a child that they thought was going to grow up to be just another earthly king. These men had set kings in power, and they really weren't impressed with just a Jewish king. The fact they came and worship him shows they understood a whole lot more. You know, you take Daniel's prophecy they had. Those of you that know it, how in depth does Daniel go into his infancy? Just says he's coming. What picture of Christ does Daniel present? Daniel 2, Daniel 7. He's the stone cut out without hands that's going to bash all the kingdoms of the world to pieces. He's going to be judge and sovereign ruler and Lord who's going to take possession of an everlasting kingdom that will have no end. So these guys had the whole picture and it didn't stop in the manger. What's that we hear? Hark, the herald angels sing. What are they singing? Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with man as men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Have you ever thought about those words this time of year? I have to wonder... Why Christmas is still so popular in a culture that's becoming so anti-Christ. You ever wonder that? I think part of it's just tradition. It's what we do. You know? A part of it's commercialism. I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but Walmart and Target don't sell Christmas stuff just to spread cheer. They do it because they're a business making money. But you know what I'm convinced of? Christmas is still popular among some for this reason. They love to emphasize the infant Christ. You know, infants excite tender emotion. You want to get the family all in a hubbub, just tell them there's a baby on the way, right? But more than that, an infant is benign and helpless. An infant you carry and you lay it down and it just stays there and can't do anything that make noises that everybody seems to like. An infant doesn't judge you. It doesn't point out your faults. It doesn't expose the deep blackness of your own soul and the skeletons in your historical closet. An infant sure doesn't have the power over life and death. And best of all, the infant in the nativity scene, season's over, I stuff him back in the box, I put him back in the shed, and Jesus is just going to stay there till next year. You see, Jesus is on my terms and he's in the shed for the next 11 months. Right? That's really not an accurate picture. You want to find out how popular the real Christ is this Christmas? Study 
and teach people the whole picture. Imagine if we tried to institute a holiday talking about Jude's prophecy, what Enoch had said about when Christ returns on a white horse. Jude records the words that Enoch said long before the flood. And he's talking about this babe in a manger having grown up, having been crucified, having been raised, having ascended up into heaven and coming back. And here's what he says. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have committed against them. How popular would that be at Walmart and Target? But if we're going to understand who this babe in a manger is, we've got to see the whole picture. He didn't even begin in the manger. He was everlasting Lord from eternity past. His earthly life coming to die for our sins began in that manger. But he's not there anymore. These wise men presented gifts. You remember what they were. Gold representing, you know, it's the substance of kings. Frankincense was part of the Old Testament sacrifices. It pictures devotion to God. And then myrrh. Myrrh was a spice used to anoint the body of the dead. Now, last time I was at a baby shower, it's been quite a while, nobody brought spices to anoint that child for its death. Strange gift. If you're going to bow down and worship Christ with the wise men in reality, it takes a recognition that he has the sovereign right to rule the universe as king and lord. He's gold. He deserves and demands devotion and dedication. And he was slaughtered on a cross because you and I have no hope of paying the penalty for our own sins. But we've got to see the whole Christ. That brings us to the final lesson. Lesson number five. These men illustrate a glorious and wonderful truth about the character of God. If you seek him, you will find him. That's universally true. Let no one get the idea you cannot come to Christ. If you're sitting here, you've not believed in him. It's not because you can't. It's because you won't. There's a big difference. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever is willing, he's saying. Do you know one of the easiest things to do is to trick your deceived heart into thinking you are seeking truth when what you're seeking is truth on your, your standards. Many people say, oh, I'm seeking God, but they're looking for a God that conforms to them. Oh, I'm looking for truth. They're looking for truth on their terms. They're looking for an eternity that bows to what they think. That is not seeking truth. We seek truth. We come as empty and devoid and nothing to a God who has everything and cast ourselves on his mercy. And it's only because he's willing to intervene that it can possibly happen. These wise men, at least by tribe, were from a background of the occult. Witchcraft, sorcery, worship of the stars, pagan sacrifices, probably substance abuse. That's ancient too. 
along with all that comes with high government officials, bribery, extortion, and at least by association, historically, this is their background. But you know what God did? He made sure the word of truth came to them and that they responded to the light they were given. Tell me, what were the chances that these magi so far away Centuries removed from when they'd first been given the prophecies. What were the chances that they would see the right star? That they would end up in the right little village of Bethlehem? And that they would end up at the right house and worship the right child? I'll tell you what the chances were. Impossible. Except that God guides the steps of the willing. Religion so-called today is a tangled mess of confusion. You open up the yellow pages and look up church. You will find anybody who teaches anything, literally. That's evidence of two things. One, it's evidence that the hour is getting very late in history because it's exactly how God said it would be. But two, now you may not like this, but two, it's evidence that multitudes are not really looking for truth. They're looking for a religion to conform what they think, and they refuse to bow before the real God. What's the chances of somebody today finding the real Jesus? There's lots of Jesuses. There's the Jesus who's not God. There's the Jesus who you profess to believe in Him and live like the devil. And there's all kinds of others. But what's the chances to find the real Christ? It's absolutely impossible, except I can tell you this. God still guides the footsteps of the willing. And that's why around this room, there's former wretches who've been transformed by the life-giving stream of the Word of God. Maybe sometimes quite unexpectedly. I mean, look at your own life. If you look closely, can you not see how God has preserved you and shown you goodness even when you refuse to acknowledge it? Most of you, this is probably not the first time you're hearing what I'm saying. Isn't God good to give you multiple chances? You know, some of you may be a lot more like Herod than you think. Well, I'd never slaughter a village full of children. You may not. You might be pretty nice most of the time. But here's what you have done. You've clawed and scratched and scraped to preserve this little mini kingdom of your own life. You've made sure others could humbly recognize the pomp of your glory and how good and righteous you really are. What a fine neighbor you are. What a nice family man. You've made sure that you guard your monarchy with walls built up of self-righteousness. and You make sure you call the shots. You live life on your terms. You're your own man. You can tolerate the infant Christ outside the walls of your castle. But the minute Christ as King and Judge and Lord shows up and He knocks down the walls built around your soul and He exposes us for the wretches that we are living in the blackness of sin, you become furious. And you do the same thing with somebody who tells you things like this. Maybe you're like the religious Jews. You have head knowledge. You know Bible verses. You can point the way You know the way, but you won't go the way. Your life may show that 
You think you believe in Christ, but you live like Jesus is another fairy tale. You know, nobody here needs to go a thousand miles on a camel across the Arabian desert. Bethlehem's only five miles that way. Not the literal city, but truth is very near to somebody who's willing to take it. Do you know God's not going to force you, though? He's not. He doesn't say whosoever gets beat over the head with the divine rod of iron is going to come. He says whosoever will. I can tell you truly, Christ has been slaughtered, the blood has been shed, the gospel has been taught through uh, two millennia now since his death. Multitudes have come to Christ and I can say with all certainty, God is willing to save anybody here. But not if you won't come. You can dwell five miles away. You can know the answer. But if you don't go to bow before him, there's no help for you. None at all. You know, this Christmas for anybody here can be a new beginning because of life in Christ. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. But make sure you have the right one. Now we're going to eat a meal here in a minute. I just want to close by saying this. I'm going to be here milling around for a couple hours. If I can be of any help to anyone here, please understand, I don't save anybody. I'm not going to sprinkle you with something and, and give you some pizzazz or something else to make you fit for heaven. But I can serve like a signpost to tell you what God says concerning you and concerning him. And I'll tell you, I'd, I would gladly give up a turkey leg to talk to you about your soul. It wouldn't be very noble to sit and eat while my neighbor's house was on fire, would it? The same may apply to you. So we're going to close with prayer. And I'm going to ask the blessing on the Lord's food. Roger will come and lead us. We'll just sing one more song and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of these men. That We don't know tons about them. But what an example they are nonetheless. Lord, I thank you that multitudes throughout the ages have humbled themselves, laid aside their pride, acknowledged thy eternal dominion, taken the Savior that you've provided and been changed. Lord, if there's one like that here or more, Father, I pray you would not let them rest in their conscience. I pray, God, that your word would haunt them as they go out these doors that you would constantly bear loud witness to their own unfitness for heaven, for their own good. Because except they come by the way, the truth, and the life, there is no other way. Father, thank you we get to eat together. Thank you for the freedom we enjoy. We pray that you would bless this meal that we're about to eat. Bless our time visiting around it. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us safely through another year. In Jesus' name, amen.